0: Hey, welcome to Gospel Community Sermon Podcast. Thanks for listening in. We hope that uh, you enjoy what you hear and that we handle the word faithfully. We'd invite you, if you have any questions or want to attend a service, to visit www.gcctroy.com. We have a dog. Many of you have dogs as well. And our dog... Every time the front door opens, wants to make for the front door for freedom, for whatever reason, as if we didn't feed it every day, as if we didn't cover it and smother it with love and kindness, it makes for the front door as if there were a better life for it somewhere else. In fact, I wonder if we could translate the barks, if it would sound something like this, like, I can't take it anymore, please take me now, sweet angel of death but it makes for the front door as if we didn't love it or take care of it. It occurs to me this morning that there are two ways to keep a dog in its place. One, you can build a fence. That is to prevent it from leaving, right? You, you build a structure so that it can't get out. The second way is to give it a bone. That is to preoccupy it with something that it likes more. Something more lovely, something more good and enjoyable to it see this morning in our passage jesus tells us that we should abide that we should stay we are to stay where we're planted as it were we're to stay where he's put us and we are to enjoy the fullness of his goodness he doesn't require us to build fences to keep us in instead he calls us to delight in him so that we stay where we are I wonder if you and I might feel like the wandering dog. Isn't that what the hymn writer says? Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Do you find yourself wandering this morning? See, we are prone to leave the God who represents grace And kindness, to be forgetful of his words and his loving kindness and gentleness toward his people, you and I are prone to just kind of leave this place of goodness and mercy. What is it about us that's so prone to this? See, here's what we find this morning, and here's where we're headed this morning in John chapter 15. We find true joy by abiding in Jesus, his word and his love. We find true joy by abiding in Jesus, his word, and his love. We have no small task in front of us here this morning. We, we break it down into three different parts. In verses 1 through 3, we're going to see the vine and the branches explained. Jesus sets forth an analogy. What does he mean? In verses 4 through 10, we're going to see how we are to abide in the vine, knowing Jesus, his word, and his love. And then verse 11, why we are to abide In the vine mainly for the purpose of joy see we have no small task in front of us this morning because this passage seems to be printed on so many of our minds how many times have you been in a conversation where someone says we need to abide in christ and unpacking the reality of this truth that jesus speaks is no small task it it comes with a lot of weightiness and and kind of heaviness of soul jody and i went for a walk last night And she asked me, she said, how is your sermon going for tomorrow morning? Now, you realize that this is a weighted question, because when I answer this question a certain way, it causes some anxiety in her. So naturally, I said, I don't know what I'm going to (laughs) say. This passage represents, in my mind, some of the most beautiful words in the New Testament. And I want to pray that God allows us to understand his heart and his mind, here from John 15. I take this passage very seriously, and I pray that, that God might transform us as we unpack what he has for us here this morning. Would you pray with me? Lord, there's no sense in irony, or there is a sense of irony here, that I am reliant upon you as I speak about abiding in you. So, Lord, make my words clear. Help us to understand your intention in saying these things, Lord Jesus. And I pray that your spirit would convict where it's necessary and comfort where it's necessary so that you would receive all honor and glory in us. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. We're going to start this morning in verses 1 through 3. We're going to talk about the vine and the branches. Look at verses 1 through 3 of John 15. Jesus says this, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Jesus starts off with this kind of... uh, twist in his little uh, teaching here in this upper room discourse, and he's, he's going to kind of move in a different direction, and he gives us this analogy about vines and branches and vine dressers. And he starts off, and he says that he is the true vine that his va- father tends to. And Jesus describes himself not just as a vine, but as the true vine. Well, what's that about? Why is he the true vine as opposed to all of the other fake ones that might have existed? He's tapping into some of the Old Testament history. If you're familiar with the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 5, verses 1 through 5, describe that that God is coming to the nation of Israel, and he's saying, I planted a vineyard, and, and I dug it, and I entrenched it, and I surrounded it. I did everything it needed to do to thrive, but it never grew grapes And because this vine never grew grapes, he was going to remove its hedge. He was going to open it up to the nations. They were going to be invaded. And so God is in judgment against Israel saying, you have not been a fruitful vine. Jeremiah chapter 2 gives the same idea. Jeremiah says this, yet God says this via Jeremiah, yet I planted you a choice vine, holy of pure seed, How then have you turned degenerate and become a wild vine? See, God's point in both of these passages is that Israel was not bearing fruit. It was not the fruitful son that he had intended it to be. And as an act of judgment, he was going to hand them over to these foreign nations. But Jesus describes himself here in John 15, verse 1, to say he is the true vine. That He stands in place of unfaithful Israel. He is the true Son who has faithfully performed all that His Father has required. And Jesus now stands as the faithful Son that Israel was intended to be. But secondly, notice what He says there. He says that He is tended by the Father. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. The Father directs the life of Jesus. In case you haven't been with us throughout our study in the book of John, we've seen this time and time again this constant reliance of Jesus upon his father's action. We saw it in John chapter 5 that Jesus only works that he performs are those that he sees the father doing in john chapter 8 verse 19 he's the representation of the father so that if we knew jesus we would know know the father as well in john chapter 8 verse 54 the father is glorifying the son it's in john chapter 10 that it's the father's will that jesus would lay down his life and take it up again See, Jesus is constantly doing what his Father is telling him to do. So what we have then is a picture of the Father tending to the life of Jesus like a gardener cares for the garden. He directs Jesus in all that he does so that it's impossible to fully separate Jesus from the Father, but Jesus is constantly bearing fruit because of the Father's provision and guidance. This metaphor just kind of needs to be expanded a little bit more. And so in verses two and three, Jesus kind of presses in, not just that he's the true vine, that you and I, if we have faith in Christ, we are branches. That's what he describes there. Look at verse 15 or chapter 15, verse two. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Unfruitful branches are thrown into the fire. This is what we see in verse 6. Later on, Jesus will fully explain this, that this unfruitful branch, these twigs, as it were, are collected, and they're gathered, and they're judged. Uh, If you're here this morning, you call yourself Christian, but you're not bearing fruit. You're not doing these things that Jesus has called you to do. You have nothing to expect but God's judgment. Now, in contradiction to that, we see uh, again here in verse 2b, the fruitful branches are pruned. Right? We would expect that the unfruitful branches are thrown into the fire and the fruitful branches go on living a peaceful and harmonious life. It's not what he says.
1: Pruned. Every branch that does, does
0: bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit just be clear, let's step away from the analogy for a second. We should anticipate that God would at times cut us, that he should take what we think to be a healthy season of life and cut it short so that he can bring about wisdom and maturity in his people. He should take what we think uh, to be good seasons of, of life and he should take it away for a season so that we could learn not to trust on these earthly pleasures. reminds us of the phrase that the author of Hebrews uses in Hebrews 12, the Lord disciplines the one he loves. Last week, we learned about John Newton. John Newton was the writer of the hymn, Amazing Grace. We kind of talked a little bit about his life, but there's another hymn that he wrote that is entitled, I Ask the Lord That I Might Grow. And that's kind of the the setting of the first four stanzas of this hymn he's describing that he's asking the lord how he can grow and then it finally culminates to this and uh in the fourth or fifth verse uh newton writes he says lord why is this i trembling cried will thou pursue thy worm to death why am i not feeling this answer to this prayer to grow and newton kind of responds as if from god "'Tis in this way,' the Lord replied. "'I answer prayer for grace and faith. "'These inward trials I employ from self and pride to set thee free "'and break thy schemes of earthly joy that thou mayest find thy all in me. I, I, "'I do these things. "'I give you hardship so that you can learn to find joy in Christ "'and not joy in circumstances.'" See, Newton understood that God uses pruning to make us productive. He cuts to create. But notice what he says in verse 3. Jesus speaks directly to his disciples, and he assures his disciples that his word has cleaned them. Remember this interaction from John 13 where, where Jesus is about to wash his disciples' feet. And he he turns to Jesus or to Peter in the midst of Peter's objection, and he says, uh, "You are clean, right?" Well, it's the same term that he uses here in fifteen verse three. Already you are clean. Why? Because of the word that I have spoken to you. Jesus is giving these uh, disciples here this assurance that they will be fruitful. The word of God is doing the work of God in cleansing the people of God so that these disciples may be fruitful branches. But he's warning them that God's pruning is coming, that he's going away, that they will experience the cutting nature of God's redemptive grace. Jesus doesn't want us to just bear fruit alone, does he? In fact, what, uh, if you and I were set to the task of just bearing fruit on our own, we would fail miserably. But what he does is he starts to articulate this sense of how we bear fruit. This is our second point, how we are to abide in the vine, knowing Jesus, his word, and his love. Look at verse 4, abide in me and I in you. Look at how the terminology changes. We have this word that's used time and time again by Jesus, this word abide, right? It, that word is even a little bit foreign to us. We, we say things like stay put or, or don't move. But Jesus is using this term abide, meno, to stay. First, he tells us in verses four and six to abide in him and, we, and he abides in us. But then in verse 7, it kind of evolves a little bit, and we abide in him, and his words abide in us. And then it evolves a little bit more in verses 9 and 10 that we are to abide in his love. What's happening here? See, the upshot of this is that we get a a pretty clear picture of what it is to abide in Jesus. Jesus is is giving an initial description, and then he's deepening the description, and then he's deepening the description again. So he starts off with this phrase that we are to abide in Christ. Look at verse 5. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing." It's pretty clear, right? you got a vine, you got branches. If, if you have a twig that's separated from the vine, it's not going to bear fruit. You can staple apples to it all day long. It's not going to bear its own fruit. What that branch needs is to be connected to the vine so that it can be part of the fruit-bearing process. Those who abide in Jesus bear much fruit. You you cannot consistently be in the presence of Jesus and not start to act like Him. It's just not possible. Second Corinthians 3 holds this principle out. He says, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, we are being transformed into the same image. Paul's saying, hey, when you're beholding glory time and time again, guess what? You become more glorious like Christ. You take on the character of Christ. First John 3 says, we do not know what we will be like, but we do know this, that we will become like him, because we'll see him as he is. When we see the glory that we behold, we become like the glory that we behold. Jesus says the opposite is true in verse 5, that apart from him, we can do nothing. If we're not beholding the glory of Jesus and being transformed by it, uh, we can't do anything righteous or good. There is no righteousness to be performed outside of abiding in Jesus Christ. But he presses further in verses 7 through 8. It's not just abiding in Christ. In Christ, abiding in us, he wants to give us even more clarity. In verses 7 through 8, he describes that we abide in Jesus' words. Look at verse 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Jesus gets a bit clearer here. It's not just a, a vague notion of abiding in Jesus, but now his words are a means for that abiding. The words of Jesus should be precious to us. They are promises made directly from the mouth of Jesus, held sacred for some 2,000 years by His church, faithfully faithfully preserved for you and I to partake of these things. And while all of Scripture is authoritative, the words of Jesus are, are straight from His mouth. They give us a picture of His heart and His passion without being filtered by the minds of Paul or Peter or whoever else. This is just... Pure word, not to say that it's better than other scriptures. It's not what I'm saying. It gives us a different picture. See, we get the sense that whatever it is to abide in Jesus, it can't happen without his words. We just have to stop and say, abiding in Jesus, in some sense, has to be in the life of the mind. It has to be cognitive, it has to be considering uh, the meaning and intention of the words of Jesus Christ that we can't abide without thinking. Abiding in Jesus is distinctly cognitive. It holds these words to be precious and valuable, and it seeks to investigate their meaning. But he doesn't just stop there, because some of us just want us to stop right here. We want to have our theology books. We want to dig in with with all of the uh, historical people and everything else, and we want to just do our nerd thing and think that that's abiding in Christ. But he doesn't stop there, does he? Verses 9 and 10, he says, we are to abide in Jesus' love. Look at verse 9. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you abide in my love if you keep my commandments you will abide in my love just as i have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love see jesus helps us drill down a bit more into the meaning of this concept of abiding of course it's not contradictory with the former two items we abide in jesus and in his word and in his love but it's not simply the cognitive of abiding in his words. It's now the, the relational abiding in his love. In fact, the, the true Christian should be this mixture of head and heart, hands. He loves the words and propositional truths which, with, which God gives in his word, but these things are meant to lead him into Jesus' love itself, to understand Jesus' intention for his people and to enter into a relationship with Christ. Notice that this, the product of this abiding in Jesus' love is a theme that we've already hit on in John 14 and, and consistently hit on throughout the book of John, is obedience. That's what he says in verse 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, uh, excuse me, not 7, verse 9. Verse 9 says, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. There's this concept of obedience, of keeping God's commandments. Jesus just said this in John 14, 23. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him. So when we obey, we abide in his love. And when we obey, he makes it uh, his home with us as, as John 14 says. It all, it's all the same idea. See, as we step back from this, as we kind of just kind of walk through this a little bit, the true vine makes us fruitful. The true vine, Jesus, makes us Fruitful, I kind of talked a lot about what it is to abide, but what does it mean for us to be fruitful? We might have notions about what that is. Fruitful means obedience. Fruitful means um, uh, creating disciples. Fruitful means uh, having ministry success or whatever else it might be. But it seems when we talk about what it is to be fruitful in John 15, Jesus has a few specific aspects that he wants to draw our attention to. Verse 10, it talks about obedience. That's what it means to be fruitful. And verse 7 says that abiding uh, leads to a life of prayerful reliance upon God. Back in verse 6, it says that we avoid eternal punishment by abiding in Christ. All of these things are true. See, fruitfulness is the fullness of life in Christ. It's humanity unleashed and encapsulates everything we were meant to be in the Garden of Eden. Remember when when God created Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, and He would walk with them in the cool of the day, and they would be obedient, and they would carry out the tasks that He had entrusted to them. We are obedient servants in face-to-face relationship with God, unfettered by guilt and shame. This is what it means for us to be fruitful. Not just to be obedient and not just to be productive, but to be connected, as it were.
1: See, the life of the abiding Christian
0: is rich. It doesn't mean there's not external pressures. You can be an abiding Christian and still have troubles with your boss. You can still have troubles with your neighbor who doesn't like how you mow your lawn or not mow your lawn, right? Right? What it does mean, though, is that even in the midst of of difficulty, our life is marked by a blessed existence in Christ, sometimes that the world cannot see. There's one more thing that Jesus wants us to see here in verse 11. Look at John 15, verse 11. These things I have spoken to you, so that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Jesus, full joy is given to us as well. Now notice he just, he, he kind of breaks down this passage. These things I've spoken to you, I've, I'm speaking these words to you, this verse, this section in verses 1 through 10. I'm speaking these things to you for a specific purpose, and that purpose is joy, right? If, if you heed what I just told you, that gives you access to joy. All right, when we abide in Jesus, when we abide in his words, when we abide in his love, that should lead to joy in Christian people, right? But it's not just any kind of joy, it's the fullness of joy, and it's Christ's joy Look at what he says there in verse 11, right? I have spoken these things to you that my joy may be in you. Christian, you have full access to the joy of Jesus. There's nothing hindering you right now. Too many times we tell ourselves, right, what I need is X, or what I need is Y, or what I need is Z, and then I can have a fulfilled life. What Jesus is telling us here is right now, if you are in Christ, you have full access to joy. But he doesn't just say, my joy. He talks about our joy at the end of verse 11. That your joy may be full, complete.
1: You and I can have
0: complete joy in Christ. Let's just stop and talk about this for a second, right? Because I'm not talking about silliness. I'm not talking about happiness or, or just goofiness or levity in life. I'm not talking about that. I am talking about a constant joy, not happiness. A joy that is lasting in all seasons, in in the seasons of drought and the seasons of plenty. You have joy because of your relationship with Jesus Christ. You have access to joy because Jesus gives you his joy as you abide in him. I just want to highlight this for a second. So far in Jesus's upper room discourse with his disciples, he first talked about love, right? He gave a new commandment. This is my commandment that I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you. Secondly, he talked about peace, my peace, not as the world gives, but as I give, I give you my peace. Let not not your heart be troubled, right? So there's love and peace, and now he speaks about joy. In this Discipleship 101, Jesus is inviting us to experience the fruitfulness of what it is to be in the Spirit, love, joy, peace. It's the outcome of us abiding and considering the grace and mercy that we have in Jesus Christ. So Jesus lays it out for us. Here's fullness of my joy for you by abiding in my self, in my word, in my love. look at this how how would we kind of consider this whole passage how does it flow together well i'm a diagram guy so i put a diagram together for you you would think i would be like an engineer or something but that is not me at all anyway by abiding in jesus his word and his love we have fruitfulness is that what he says verse 5 through 8 abide in me and you will bear much fruit and that product it gives glory to the father in verse 8 and it gives joy to us in verse 11 and the byproducts of this are salvation from judgment effective prayer obedience this is what jesus is setting in front of us this morning that our abiding produces fruitfulness and our fruitfulness produces these two outcomes the glory of the father and joy for us if we're confused this morning we step back and say, I still don't get a picture of what it is to abide in Jesus. I don't understand it. Help me understand. Because honestly, that's, that's where I've been this week. Help me understand this, Lord. Help me uh, put my arms and my fingers around this so I can understand it. To the greatest picture of what it is to abide is given by Jesus himself. We, we might have missed this as we have read through this passage. Jesus modeled abiding in his life with the Father. If we look at verse 1, what does he say? I am the true vine. My Father is the vine dresser. My Father is the one who cares for the vine. My, my Father, I trust him that he's going to do the things that I need him to do. And, and he goes on again in verse um, 9, and he says, Jesus tells us that, that he loves like his Father loved him. Look at verse 9. It says, as the father has loved me, so have I loved you. Where did Jesus learn how to love? He saw the father. He was abiding in the father. He was learning from the father. What about verse 10? Verse 10 says this, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. See, He makes it explicit here that he has kept the father's commands and he is abiding in his love. He's he's watching what the Father does, he's emulating what the Father does, and he's trying to produce that in his life, or he is producing that in his life. See, if we want to know what it means to abide, we need not look any further than how Jesus has submitted to the love of his Father. You and I don't need to question what it is to abide in, in Jesus, because Jesus showed us how he was abiding in his Father. He was the true vine, always doing what his father had required of him. We just stop and we consider the nature of Jesus' relationship to his heavenly father. It was filled with affection. When we get to John chapter 17, there's just going to be this outpouring of love between the son and the father and this exchange that's going back and forth from them. And so it's filled with this affection. It was marked by power that Jesus is consistently doing the works that he sees his Father doing. But most importantly, it was fully submissive. John 12 tells us that Jesus said, he said, now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. He's fully submissive to his father's agenda. See, it's that submission that would take Jesus all the way to the cross, right? That Jesus' abiding with his father was strong enough to lead him directly to Calvary, where he would lay down his life for his people. Jesus was so strongly connected to his father, that he would bear the fruit of self-denial, becoming like a servant even to the point of death. It's not just that Jesus is this grand example. Jesus is now the power by which you and I can live. He's not just this far-off example that you and I could never attain to. Okay, I'm going to do a sports analogy here for a second. If you don't like sports, I'm sorry. Just check out for a second. I promise I'll come right back. We've been talking about the difference between LeBron James and Steph Curry. LeBron James is a monster of a man. Six foot eight, hulking, whatever else. And he was that way since he was 18 years old. It's really hard to try and produce what LeBron James does. Steph Curry's like a little bit taller than me. Skinny, works really hard. It's a lot more attainable to try and do what Steph Curry does than what it is to try and do what LeBron James does. Now just stick with me here for a second, right? If you and I try to set out to do LeBron James kind of things, we're going to fail miserably, aren't we? If you, you and I set out to perform all the aspects of what God calls us to do, to be, we're going to fail. You set out tomorrow morning. You say, I am not going to tell a lie. Get pulled over. How fast do you think you were going back there? I don't know. Slightly below the speed limit, of course, right? You get to work and your boss says, hey, why are you late? you Make up a story, right? Got pulled over. (laughs) You don't have to tell a story, I guess, See, what I'm, what I'm saying is that we're constantly invited into this reality of life where our sinful heart wants to insert itself all the time, time and time again. And it might not be lying. It might be lusting. It might be a thousand different other things. But if you have no power to perform those things, no renewal from which to report, perform those things, you will fall flat on your face. Jesus can't just be a good example for us. He has to actually be a substitute for us. He has to take all of those sinful inclinations that we had, and he has to purify them and pay for them in his grace. And he has to strip out our sinful heart of stone, and he has to implant in us a heart of flesh by the Spirit that we could perform these things as we abide in Christ. It's not just this Ridiculously high standard that we can't attain to, it is the grace and mercy of Jesus that allow us to do so. See, Jesus was God's true vine. And your connection to him doesn't just mean you got to do better and pull yourself up by your bootstraps, it means you've got to rest. Rest in the grace and mercy that Jesus has given, right? Here's the problem, though. You and I, we love all the wrong vines. We love all the wrong vines, don't we? We like to tap into the vine of self. We like to tap into the vine of pleasure. We like to tap into the vine of respect, and we think that somehow that's going to bear fruit in our lives. truth is that the only way we truly bear fruit in righteousness is through Christ. There's no life like that which Jesus gives. I and mean, we're tempted to abide in so many different things. Sometimes we're deceived and abide in these dead vines that we've talked about, and sometimes we we knowingly choose to stay in those vines. But the truth is that there's no life like that that which Christ has provided for us. What do these vines look like? What do these false vines look like? What's it look like for us to abide in Christ? I want to start off just with a few distortions here. We might think that our theological and scriptural acumen might be abiding in Christ. Remember that Satan himself knew and quoted the scriptures, and that nobody has better theology than the demons. we should not say that those who are knowledgeable of God's words are abiding with Christ. And in fact, it's quite possible to be knowing of God's word, but not be submitting to it, right? And conversely, we might say, okay, your theological acumen, acumen doesn't really uh, relate to you abiding with Christ. But on the other side of this, your, your emotional life with Christ doesn't also mean that you're abiding with Jesus, you know, I get really teary-eyed every time I hear America, America by Ray Charles, and it has absolutely nothing to do with Jesus. I, I love watching movies and shows, and I find myself tearing up at the, uh, the sappy uh, Hallmark specials that I like to watch. Not really. But our emotions are a poor instrument for navigating the spiritual life that we have. Isn't that true? So your emotional approach to Jesus doesn't mean that you're abiding in Christ. Your effective ministry is not abiding with Christ. Maybe you're here this morning and that's your full-time work. You give yourself to uh, some type of Christian service in a Christian school, church, or a parachurch organization. Maybe you're holding to this idea that my fruitfulness in my work is the very thing that, that means that I'm abiding in Christ. Well, Matthew 7, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many things many works in your name, Jesus looks at those people and says, depart from me, I never knew you. In fact, we've seen this recently, haven't we? We've seen people with massive, like worldwide platforms that have a, a just corrupt inner life. A ministry effectiveness can be manipulated. Bottom line. what I want to set in front of us this morning is this idea. That true abiding in Christ is irreducibly complex. You're saying that's a word. Irreducibly complex means that you cannot take one part of it away and it still function. Imagine a three-legged stool. You take one leg away, it's no longer a stool, is it? <laughs> or you can try it, it's not, not going to work real well. And here's the three parts that we have abiding in christ trusts his word abiding in christ lives obediently and abiding in christ leans on jesus alone abiding in christ trusts his word it takes jesus as what he says right isn't that exactly what jesus said right if you abide in me and my words abide in you We can't abide in Christ without his words, without him revealing himself to us. So we've got to trust his word. If you're here this morning and you're you're saying, I'm I'm a Christian, I want to walk with Jesus, I want to do the things that Jesus calls me to do, and yet you have no disciplines in, in the scriptures, don't expect a deep pattern of abiding with Christ. Abiding with Christ means taking up his words and trusting his words. Secondly, it lives obediently. Isn't that what we saw here, right? Like, if you love me, you'll obey my commandments. We saw that in chapter 14. We see that here in chapter 15. Jesus is consistently saying that a life of obedience is necessary for us to abide with Christ. Just imagine a a kid who comes home and and the father says, you know what? I really need you to do. I, I, I need you to go clean your room. And the kid says, you know what, dad, I love you so much. I just, I really, I love you. I love you. I love you. And then walks away, doesn't clean his room. Right. We start to question whether the true love and vitality of relationship was actually there. Some parents are looking at their kids right now. That's not what I intended. Sorry, kids. That's, but there's a contradiction of words and actions, right? If, if we claim to love God, to love Jesus, we should try to live according to his word. Now, hear me, you'll fail. There's grace and mercy for that, but there should be an orientation to desire to please God. You should want to want to please God, right? So we trust his word. We live obediently. And finally, we lean on Jesus Do you have any other hope outside of of Christ? Is there any other thing in your life that carries more meaning than the person of Jesus? Are you so bent on career advancement and and progress in your work that that you kind of have Jesus as a side hustle? Are you so bent on finding that perfect relationship with someone else that that Jesus is just kind of an add-on to your agenda? See, if we're going to abide in Christ, we need to do these three things. And these come straight from the mouth of Jesus, right? We we have to trust his word. We have to live obediently. And we have to be in Christ. We have to abide. We have to trust and, and rely
1: on him. It's something
0: that's so simple, yet you'll spend the rest of your life trying to figure out how to do it. It's so complex that you'll constantly need Jesus's grace and mercy in the process. But abiding in Christ might be the lifelong endeavor that will cover and color your history, that will make life so beautiful and rich and good. I wonder if you might join with me as we pray for this life as we pray that God allows us this sense of abiding in Christ, that we might bear fruit for his name. I'm going to pray for that. also going to pray for our meal. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you, Lord Jesus, that you have provided a means to commune with you. Even as Jesus had said last week, that if we obey and we show our love and obedience, that you would come and make your home with us in the spirit and even now, he says that if we, if we love him, he will abide with us. His words will abide in us, and we will abide in his love. Lord, we thank you for this. We thank you for these promises. I pray, Lord, that you would make us a people who abide with you, who seek in every instance of their life to live out the life of mercy and kindness that you've given to us to cultivate a life of reflection upon Jesus' death and resurrection so that we might carve out a future of obedience and pursuit of your kingdom. We pray now that as we eat together, that you would bless our fellowship, that you would give us sweetness together with one another. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.